Yo, we're back. We're back. Welcome to Fascism Podcast. Yeah, we. I'm Jackie. I'm Hope, and we read stuff so you don't have to. Um, and we explore those readings. <laughs> yeah, we read stuff uh, in art and fashion, ranging from history to theory to just absolute internet trash. And then we dissect it together. We're we're just two friends who found a geyser of passion, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and. This is where we come to explore it. There was a comment recently on our TikTok about not having enough smart parts. And I just want to say, we're not trying to be smart. Well, I would say that like deciding what... I think that like that take is very rooted in white supremacy. Exactly. Like uh, exalting the written word above all else. Like it's just kind of rude also. But here, this is a place for people who both want to dissect the meaning of aesthetics while also indulging in them. It's like, we're here to have fun and to be smart, but... And also not be smart. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) We're here to learn. Yeah, we're here to learn and explore. And have a good time. And not be judged about how... Because I'm already judged enough, you know, like, about how I sound. I feel like somehow I have found circles that don't judge me, but there are people like Socialist Alternative... (laughs) Who judge her, she's saying... (laughs) Um, if you're if you're new here, Jackie didn't get into the socialist alternative group, but honestly, I felt like it was it was really our first negative comment, and t- it made me feel like we'd made it. Yeah, no, I'm, I yes, yes, but also like give us feedback if you have constructive feedback. Please email us at fascismpod at gmail dot com. We also just want to hear from you. Yeah, definitely. And as we start every episode, well, I don't know why I entered it like that. Anyway, Jackie. What's trending for you? Um, yeah, I would say what's trending for me is <laughs> resting and relaxing. What's that book that's called? Is it like the year of rest and relax? Oh, my year of rest and relaxation. Which I've heard is just about like a hot girl doing nothing. But anyways, I am definitely trying my hardest to not move my body a lot. Um, and I don't know if I'm actually achieving it because I do feel very stressed but I've only it's only been a week since I stopped working as an intern and I still have like basically essentially two other jobs at the same place but they're all they're both like supposed to be like 10 hours each so I'm technically only supposed to work 20 hours a week but I don't know it doesn't feel like I am it's a little chaotic and yeah so I'm just like letting myself sleep in if I have to enjoying the time I have meeting on Monday and I or an interview on Monday, I'm trying to clear my schedule just for that because I'm going to have to hype myself up for it yeah. and then calm down from it. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, give yourself room for that entire bell curve. <laughs> exactly. And I don't know how people just go to interviews and go back to work or whatever. Like, because I'm just, I need to sit and stew on how bad I was for a little bit and then maybe just like watch a movie to like stop thinking about it. It's kind of like when you're going to give a presentation in class and like the whole class, you're just thinking about your own presentation. And then after you go, you're just thinking about your own presentation and how it went it's like a complete waste of of an entire class yeah exactly and I'm, I'm just like yeah 
So I'm just kind of like a nervous wreck that's trying to relax and uh, rest. I think I'm doing it. It's just like hasn't hit in. It hasn't like, it's only been a week, like I said, from like only working three jobs. Anyways, what is trending with you, Hope? Um, trending with me is West Coast Swing. Um, that's not like a like a fun catchphrase. It's just literally the, the title of the thing that I'm doing. Uh, I've been taking lessons for a year now and I feel like something's finally starting to click. West Coast Swing is a partner dance that is involves a lot of improv. It's one of the only partner dances and involves a lot of improv. So it's like very hard to learn. Like you think you've learned moves in class and then you go to social dance and people do the most wacky stuff. It just, it, it requires a level of skill and confidence that I just don't have yet. But I've been making myself go to social dance every week. People tell me that I need to make more eye contact or they tell me, why do you look so afraid? The feedback is <laughs> <laughs> And I'm, and it's like, I feel like normally in conversation, I make a completely adequate amount of eye contact, like maybe even above average in terms of like skill at making eye contact in conversation. But like on the dance floor, it's just like, I'm like, like ballroom, people don't look at each other at all. And I'm like, why? I don't know. It's intense. I hate looking into other people's eyes unless I'm like, like in obsessed with them or something. Totally. And I think it's not like you don't have to make eye contact in this dance. I think I just maybe was exceptionally darty. <laughs> like I was just like looking at like trying to turn my head all the way around, but, and just probably generally seeming awkward, but I've crossed a threshold. Like I'm, I've been doing some moves and I'm getting to know people there. How's your eye contact level? I think I seem more normal now. Like I think I seem like less stressed out. Sure. I make occasional eye contact. You, when In class we learned that you're supposed to look at their shoulders if you're a follow because like the shoulders kind of like shows you where you're supposed to go and they're just supposed to look in the direction that they want you to go. So it's like a lot of things that you're supposed to be keeping in mind but when you're just trying to survive and stay afloat. I hear you. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm. there's no way I'm thinking about all of that stuff. A hundred percent. Contra dancing is the only kind of like dancing I've done as like a social event besides going to the club or whatever, but like organized dancing and they're like so serious about eye contact there and it has really traumatized me. Yeah, we've talked about this because I've gone to Contra dance once in Seattle and it was one of those experiences that I internalize as positive, but my nervous system was giving me all of yeah. signals that were like, this is weird. We don't like this. This feels uncomfortable. But in my mind, I'm always just like, trying new things is good. Being uncomfortable is good. Yeah. But like, did I enjoy it? I don't know. Yeah. I mean... It is fun. Yeah. It's, it's fun. complicated because it's like, are we all autistic? I don't know. Like, you know, like we should be making more eye contact technically, but I don't know the level. There's this one guy named Snake. His name was fucking Snake. That that checks out for me for contra dancing. Right? Yeah. Didn't wear shoes. Mm-hmm. And was a fiddler. Yep. Oh, and was so serious about the level of eye contact. I was like, I don't like this guy is giving such fuckboy energy. Anyways, that was Yeah, <laughs> right. And there's this like brand of like enlightened boy who's right. like, look into my eyes. Yeah. You know, where it's like you end up feeling like you're doing something wrong, but whatever. Yeah, we're all we all should dance more. I it's like one of those things where I'm I'm now mad every time I go to a wedding that no one knows how to partner dance. I'm like, I can do salsa and I can do West Coast swing. Nobody? seriously yeah, nobody that's fair that is fair we should all get like this is just it's a new thing too it's the last 20 30 years everybody used to know group dancing right my grandparents when they were first dating that's what they would go do they'd go dance there's like a rooftop bar in indiana like some dance hall they would go like dance together yeah so cute 
All right, we should get on to our next subject. Yeah, super exciting because we we read the memoir called A Visible Man by Edward Enninful, and this is hot off the fucking press. It is. I want to also like uh, transition as he did love to dance. He was at the club. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, speaking of dancers, <laughs> me and Edward. <laughs> but yeah, and he also loved to go to the carnival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Edward Enninful is currently the editor-in-chief of British Vogue and It's like he's, yeah, he's like the global content something. He, okay, Edward Enninful is the English editor-in-chief of British Vogue and the European editorial director of Condé Nast. Interesting. I feel like they're all giving, they're giving a double titles to a bunch of people in Condé Nast because they're falling apart and they can't afford to like pay individual people these positions. And they yeah. also kind of realize that media is about content now these days like on the internet and like you can't solely probably have a magazine well yeah definitely not yeah and so we talked a little bit about edward Enninful when we did the september issue episode where we watched the september issue and we see edward Enninful when he's working at vogue we read his memoir this is going to be part one getting going through and just kind of sharing our thoughts on it and yeah it came out this September, so... What did you know about Edward before... Nothing. I hadn't heard of him before we watched the September issue, issue and you were like, that's Edward Enninful. Yeah, and what I... I guess what I knew was very little. I knew he was the, in the British Vogue, and the only reason I knew he was, in, he was the British Vogue editor-in-chief was because Beyonce was on the cover. And I was like, why is she on the cover of British Vogue for, to announce her record coming out, her new... And I was like... That's kind of interesting that she chose British Vogue over American Vogue because she is obviously American. And And obviously has her choice of whatever fucking magazine she wants to be on. Uh, Right, right. So, and then when you start to read about Edward, it it makes total sense of why she chose. Yeah, and the cover looks super cool. Yeah, so let's get into it. Our boy talking about Ghana. He grew up in Ghana. Yeah, but his dad was in the military, and uh, by the time Edward was born, the Ghanaian military was one of the most powerful in all of Africa, and so his dad had, like, a pretty prestigious career. Like, being an officer, they had a solid middle-class life, Um, these people had houses on military bases, and enough salary to, like, ensure that the kids could have, like, education and upward mobility. Yeah, I love how he explores Ghana, And I get to know and understand Ghana a little bit more. And I know I'm going to get these names wrong. So please forgive. And I can't say anything right. To be fair, she can't really say English words either. Exactly. (laughs) Kwame Nkuruma is Ghana's first president. And feel free to correct me. I I don't mind. Ghana's first president, the first in Africa to server his nation from the British. Sever. See? See what I'm talking about? To sever his nation from the British Empire. So that's a big fucking deal. Right. They severed from the British Empire and he has a pan-Africanist vision for the country, this country that was once known as the Gold Coast. So Ghana is like relatively socially and economically advanced among its neighbors. Ghanaian soldiers would like do frequent tours abroad, often like helping the United Nations peacekeeping forces. So for like for a lot of his childhood, his dad was traveling and gone. Which was fine because, like, his dad was a big a hole or is a big a hole. But he, and he, yeah, he just talks about how he's gone all the time. And his real name is, most people call me Asamia. And Akin, the country's most dominant language after English, it means blessed child. 
And he says that in Ghana, it's common to take the name of the day on which you were born. It's like, what, it's like you a Wednesday or Tuesday, you know? <laughs> There's like, that's, you got some common ground with someone right off the bat. Ghana eventually became politically unstable and they moved to another base camp called Burma Camp. There was just constant firing squads happening on a regular basis near their home. He doesn't really go into like his, that I don't know how much he, like I don't want to play six thing. This is traumatic and him being like he has PTSD or anything, but this is like insane to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's like hard for us, for us to imagine living in a place where this kind of political instability is so palpable and around you. But he talks about how there's these frequent military coups and they would just like, they would execute people. And so you would like every so once, every once in a while, you would like see out your window people like lined up to be executed or you would just like hear the gunshots. And so that was just like part of their part of the landscape of their lives at that point. Edward Edenfull was born with a blood disorder. He has sickle cell, the sickle cell trait. And so like he describes this as having like an especially piercing case of arthritis that only morphine can really take the pain away from. And so he's like in hospitals a lot, having his blood checked. His mom would come with him. He could never be that far from her because if one of these attacks came up, like he needed to be around her. He also claims he is a hypochondriac. And I think this probably stemmed from his ex multiple experiences of being in the hospital. My, I would, I would just learned about lots of disorders while he was there. He's like, huh? Yeah. What are you in for? Well, I think you're just like, you know, the possibility exists. Like my brother had some extreme things that happened to him when he was young. And, and I would consider him a hypochondriac. Is like, cause there is like this invincibility that is typical of being a teenager. But if you've already witnessed and experienced like the shit that can go wrong with a body, like it's like, yeah, you just know how fragile you are. And you're yeah. just like, Oh, am I sick? All the time. And he talks more about his mom and says that like in Brockwa, where, where she lived as a teenager, she was one of 22 kids, which is typical in extended polygamous African families. And so how she starts doing dressmaking is that she makes dresses for the local ladies at that time. And she had an amazing color for eye or amazing, amazing eye for color. And she really like honed her skills for fitted shape. A few of her brothers also become became tailors. So it's like a family thing. And then at 17, she brought her best samples and traveled from her village to the capital of Accra to try to get into a technical college. At the interview, they told her not to bother because she already knew everything they could teach her. So she just picked up and moved to Ghana and set up a dressmaking business. And that's where she met Major Crosby and in full. He was really strict. He had, you know, chores he gave to the, everybody. They like all of them cooked essentially while he did nothing. <laughs> He was just a grump and just no fun to be around. One of the quotes is, don't play when your father's home because the party was always over when he was home. Was the, So they had to refrain from having a good time when he was around, which is such a bummer. Like, how do you hate fun so much to the point that you can't stand to see it in front of you? Yeah, it's also just like he's really the odd man out of the family because like the siblings are all so close and they also really enjoy their mother. And it's like, no one else is like him in the family. And he doesn't seem to really influence the family. Everyone's just like appeasing him, but not really. Yeah, I, I want to also say Edward goes into each of like his family's like members, like personalities, and they all sound very cool. He's very close with his older brothers um, who love playing soccer. And then eventually one of his sisters becomes like his agent, mm -hmm. which is badass. I don't know. I, I love that for totally. her. Yeah. He also talks about how in Ghana, it's the grownups who get the biggest and best portions. And I just 
Having grown up in a big family, it was interesting to me. It was like the littlest ones who have to fend for themselves. He said, the minute I turned my back, someone would dive bomb my plate and steal the one piece of meat I had on it. Did you really relate to that? I related to like fighting with siblings over food. And like, I mean, my brother and I used to get in like screaming matches over Subway sandwiches. You know why? Because he would eat my fucking leftovers. It was it was so mean. Siblings are the worst roommates. They are. And I am. My sister used to tape up her dresser as if I couldn't like get in through the tape to because I would like steal her clothes. That's hilarious. I see. I do love the drama around all that shit. I love the yelling. And yeah. they eventually move. Like his mom was just like, I can't fucking handle these firing squads. And they moved to Tima, which is the largest seaport. The father would already complain about the noise in the five bedroom house that they had. And now they were just like compact living in like a two bedroom house. (laughs) He also talks about um, walking around his neighborhood in heels. He was like, he's like, one day I wanted to wear my mom's shoes just for fun as little boys sometimes do. He says, or at least this little boy did. I was walking about around the neighborhood with my brothers, just doing my thing in a sensible midi heel, no big deal, when out of nowhere, one of the more savage stray dogs that prowled around our house bounded out, barking and chasing. It wasn't even an elaborate stiletto, but it was enough to impair my getaway skills, and I fell and got a nasty bite. Yeah, he he was just into the hills, understandably. I mean... I think this is just a random story, and he was scared of dogs for a long time afterwards, but it didn't... Yeah, that's, that part of the story is kind of like, I think he's trying to be like, yeah, I was kind of gay to begin with. Right, right. He's laying the groundwork for being gay. Yeah, but I'm also like, I don't know if every every kid puts on their mom's shoes is what I assume. And it doesn't, whatever, everybody's gay, really. So Well, it is interesting because like, I don't know, it's just hard for us. I just have no context of Ghana, especially yeah. Ghana in the 80s or 70s. And so I wouldn't have necessarily known, you know, in some places like... It would be dangerous for someone born male to, like, wear heels. Dad said that he would slit his throat if he ever came out as gay. But uh, obviously he was like, I didn't take his threat seriously because we were all still standing alive to this day. But one of the things that he also talks about in this book is how, like, he would see a trans woman constantly who was a sex worker going in and out of, of town in the coastal city, and it was, like, no big deal. Right, right. So I don't know where the homophobia is coming from. It is kind of confusing because I'm like, at what point, why is that okay and this other thing isn't? Right, yeah. He would go on these trips with his mom to like help her out with her business as a seamstress and he got to recognize the expression on a woman's face when she turns to look at himself, herself in a new dress and finds what she sees is really beautiful and also how she knows when it's not quite right. You can imagine how this has come in handy as a stylist. And he throws some names out, which I think is hilarious. These days, Rihanna or Taylor Swift need only uh, move a millimeter of their faces for me to know if it's a love or a hate. I like that. And he does talk further in the book about how it's so important for the model to feel like the best version of themselves. I don't know. You're there to model. That's how I felt. But that was his perspective was like, yeah, like I'm kind of like everyone should feel like they're able to express himself the photographer the stylist everyone should feel like they're collaborating and feel comfortable and whatever but yeah he talks a lot about like the, the look on her face blah 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 especially like you know my hatred towards like taylor swift's style mm-hmm. i mean like you're like if she, if she smiles take that take whatever <laughs> she was wearing off yeah i feel like that should be a guidance to go in the opposite direction yeah um and so his mom 
has like a serious dressmaking business. There were 30 to 40 seamstresses working under her at any given time. He says that his father never wore a color or pattern in his life, which I just love is like a sick burn or just someone who's into clothes. It's like, yeah, that's how you would describe someone like that. Like, yep, if you, they don't wear color, if you know what I mean. So yeah, I, I just wanted to mention he talks about specifically like traditional West African wax cotton prints and like how they have like an enormous variety of styles. He says that West African women's clothing is typically quite structured, built to hug and flattered curves and his mother had mastered it. I'd like to learn more about Ghanaian fashion. Oh, it's fucking cool. Another thing that I thought was funny about his dad, creative careers were for women, um, and the NFL boys would be doctors and lawyers, respectful, uh, dignified, cerebral, dull, basically. I just think it's like woke at, at the same time as not, like, at least he thinks women should have jobs, you know? And yeah. also, like, cool, I'm down for at least creative jobs. Right, right. Yeah, like, cool. Yeah, I'll take the creative jobs. Thanks. <laughs> but also that is, like, inherently homophobic and sexist. And right. He expresses a lot of love for women. And he really does. I really appreciate that. Yeah, because you and he, like, really does show love. And I think he actually gives a like I think he is a defender for women in a lot of ways and I thanks Edward but and he says that his sister Mina was scouted by a model agent when she was away at university in Calgary which I'm like I think it's funny because I I feel like at one point you were like I don't believe that people actually get scouted and we were both like yeah it's never happened to us like there's no way and it's like literally like every book we've read it's like but that's the thing I think it's a PR thing like I don't know if it actually happens as much as like they're that's the story that they tell. So you think that Mina didn't get scouted at college? I mean, I don't know the real story, but that's just like always the story you hear about models. And I'm like... I feel like before modeling was as big of an industry as it is now, it's like you did have to go out and find people. Whereas now it's like you have dozens and dozens of like very conventionally attractive people or just whatever people showing up like wanting to model for whatever for whatever reason well everybody should be able to model because everybody is photogenic in their own fucking special way but yeah it is kind of you don't have to you but you don't have to go to the mall to get them anymore they come to you uh just like having a flashback from my high school having this woman come to our class like and we had an audit like auditorium sit in about her being like you should come and model for us all of you it's potentially like I am giving giving all these weird stories about how she got a job as at this modeling career and she looks like where a lot of eye makeup had fake nails on, crazy hair. Clearly a scam. They let a scam modeling person come in, talk to like 300. Dude. That's my school for you right there. Anyways. So goofy. Yeah, it's so weird. And I'm, I'm sure like if you have to pay to be a model, that's a scam. That's a scam. I mean... There are like things where they give you an allowance and you pay like the gigs that you get pay off that allowance, which is fucked up. But like if you have to enter paying, you know, that's a MLM probably. In 1978, the president, President Pong was overthrown in a coup. Less than a year later, Jerry Rawlings, an Air Force lieutenant, overthrew Okufo, who was promptly executed. Corruption had been an issue in the country since before the Gold Coast became Ghana and like banging on about it was an easy way for populist leaders like Rawlings to gain support. For two years, a politically moderate, moderate civilian government was in charge and basically it became clear that it wasn't safe. I mean, Rawlings became a dictator essentially 
And I want to say, um, Edward Innifel, not that you're ever going to listen to this because I know you're not, but you have a, an error in your book and you should fire your copy writer. There says, someone called our house when it happened. And then at first we thought they were taking about our father, not talking about our father. Uh-oh. Just wanted to point that out. It's crazy when typos get through, but I'm like also... It's not crazy. He's talking about there's so many coups and so people belong to different political families and his family was not part of the Rawlings. A cousin of his father's, Colonel Joseph Ennenfull, had presided over the military trial in 1979 that convicted the Rawlings of mutiny. The Rawlings escaped justice and a few months later, some of his supporters came to Joseph Ennenfull's house and shot him and his wife at the breakfast table. They died. And around the same time, the fathers of two of Mina's friends at school were executed. So it's like, it's bad. That's really close to home. So they're, they're yeah, they're peak uh, in fear. So they're like, we got to get the f- out. Yeah. And he goes to boarding school, which is typical. First, his father leaves for England. Mm-hmm. And so he's in boarding school. Edward's in boarding school. He goes to the school called Ada Saddles, which its original na- name was St. Nicholas. So the students were known as the Santa Clausians. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. That's the kind of the whimsicalness I need for people to name their mascots. Mm-hmm. No more warriors. No more tigers. Like, I want to hear the Santa Clausians. You Definitely. Know? Yeah, it is. It's it's nice and whimsical. He describes, so his dad leaves for England and he like doesn't really understand the situation. And Pretty much short thereafter, they're like, they're told that they're all going to London. Just the kids. And the mom's going to have to stay home. Because she's like still running the business. Yeah, exactly. And... I don't know if I don't know what else the reason was, but they had to leave. And he was super excited because he's going to London, which was a hot spot. Honestly, I compared a lot of this. I don't know, not fairly, but Andre Leon Talley moved to New York City, like separated from his family. He got the opportunity to move to London with his family and had that support system within London. Mm. And so I think he was more successful, thriving in a fashion world because he had su- like such a community around him mm-hmm. versus Andre Leontale really was like flailing because he wasn't surrounded by a, a community. And like what was really fucked up, they were originally members of the British Commonwealth, like Ghanaians were. Um, so they didn't need visas to travel to the UK. But that time, like Margaret Thatcher had changed the roles like just a couple months before or something. Oh, which fuck you, Margaret Thatcher, once again. Like He talks so much shit on her in this book. But yeah, she sucks. Altogether, like the West African Jackson 5 with baby Janet, we were stuck until our father could come out of the train to present what paperwork he had. During all the waiting, the nervousness, the not knowing what was going on, to, going to happen, they fed us dinner and it was turkey and it wasn't terrible, even if it wasn't how we were used to eating it back home. And oh my God, we said to each other, it's all white. I don't know exactly. He's like early teens now or maybe mid-teens. Yeah, I don't know exactly either. It's like, yeah, it's like 13, 14. He's around there. Ever been as happy to see my father as when he came to pick us up at the Gatwick airport? They go back to this tiny three-bedroom flat that belonged to their Auntie Baba. Yeah, it was like basically run down Victorian houses, council flats, which I don't know what council flats are to you. Uh, industrial concrete, roaring roads, soggy skies. I love that word, soggy skies. 
Yeah, he said he'd never seen a place laid out with such rigorous logic and uniformity. His formative years, he said, wouldn't have been much different, like, were extremely different. Families like ours did not have the horror of enslavement as part of our narrative. In Ghana in the 1970s and 80s, the colonialists were gone, from visible power at least, as was the British imperial government. Despite various lingering quirks of the old regime and the very real control British companies retained over Ghana's rich mineral mineral assets. They always want those assets. The empire simply wasn't part of the mindset of my generation. There were a few white people in Ghana, but they were always welcome. We loved their different accents and understood that they had actually come to make a life there. It was because they had a feeling for us too. Sure, we were sometimes bemused by white people, but we never felt threatened by them. We had the confidence of knowing we were equals. More than that, we were hosts. They were on our turf. And since most of them meant us no harm, all was well. The same was not the case once we got onto their turf, where we had seen as interlopers with our hands out, ready to cause trouble yeah i'm i'm just like fucking i'm glad that someone's talking about this this is how it is yeah so coming into these experiences he was not welcomed yeah and just like explaining these really different contexts of being black in ghana understanding white people as people who like sometimes come into your country and like they're these fun visitors versus like being black in london and you know being around all these like african and caribbean immigrants and like people that had been in London for like decades and just these really different experiences of being black. Margaret Thatcher was like basically essentially the same thing as Reagan and like the borders were a big issue and wanting to control borders was a big thing too. It was, there was such a panic and it started really in the 50s and 60s as the post-war economy needed bodies for manual labor. The population of color really did grow rapidly at that time with people coming from Caribbean, India, Pakistan, Ghana and Nigeria by the time my family got to London, it had already started to become like a multi-racial, multi-ethnic place in London. But the state of affairs didn't go down well with everyone. And it sounds like for a, for a while, the government wanted that because they wanted like more working bodies. And then yeah. by the 1980s, it started to change. He says the UK was highly polarized. It's racial tensions egged on by the flinty-eyed, hairspray-helmeted conservative Prime Minister, Thatcher, who was known for going on the BBC and breathily intoning, intoning right-wing zingers such as, if we went on as we are, by the end of the century, there would be four million people of the new Commonwealth. They're so racist, yet they don't want to... I just don't understand the hypocrisy of all. It's like, you need more workers so you can exploit them, right? Like, then you're complaining about having the workers that you're exploiting? Like, make it make sense. Yeah, dude, it doesn't make sense. He talks about, like, never mind that many of those who came over from the new Commonwealth and Pakistan as economic migrants were coming from former British colonies where the ancestors of people like Thatcher swamped them with far more violent and mendacious intent. Surely it was people from what became the colonies who had the right to hold a grudge over the treatment they received both back home in, and in the UK, yes. when in fact all they were doing was trying to share in the abundance of ancestral wealth that their free labor had created. It's like he really delivers some truths here. Yeah, and it's also giving context to what he just came into. Yeah. London seemed so cool in the 60s, but also... 60s, 70s, and 80s? Oh my god, yes. Like, London, I wish I had been there in the 70s even, even in the 90s. Like, whenever Edward was coming up, that would have been sick. But it is just, like, the colonial presence is still so heavy to this day. Oh, yeah. And it's... 
it is kind of sickening how mean they are. It's just like the violence of it all. Yeah, right. I like reading memoirs that are good because it like, and people with interesting stories because it's just like these contexts. I love reading about these micro contexts where it's like this certain place in time and what that meant to someone and and how the political situation like impacted it it's just cool yeah it's like macro to micro it's like Mm -hmm. it's he we're talking about an individual but he he's giving this greater context of like his experience as an individual because it it's a it's a whole thing right it's not happening in a vacuum like if we were just talking about him and his family it's like not the not the full story i mean more white people need to have context too when they write memoirs it's like, like you have to be at least state the obvious so you can explain your experience of how you existed and like he's doing, he's stating the obvious, but also being clear, like what was happening. And also this was my experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, riots that happened at dawn on 28th September, 1985, police burst into a Brixton home with Cherry Gross, a single mother of six, seeking her son, Michael, who was under suspicion of robbery. They shot her in front of her three other children. So like, again, racism isn't new. Killing of black people isn't new. He also says that like, Though the British police aren't militarized like American police, excessive force against black Britons is still an epidemic, and it was even worse then. London has this policy colloquially referred to as the sus law. Um, It was similar to New York's recently canceled stop and frisk, meaning police were legally empowered to stop, question, and search anyone they deemed suspicious. Yeah, I think it was exceptionally bad in the 80s because they just had free reign. But like, yeah, the difference with being in the U.S. and the level of violence in the U.S. is that that our policemen have fucking guns. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. When word of Miss Gross's shooting got out around the neighborhood, people poured into the streets. Windows were broken. Cars were overturned. The police came charging in with riot gear as rocks and Molotov cocktails were thrown and anything flammable was set on fire. Sounds very familiar. And um, when uh, I was reading this, I was like, fuck yeah. I mean, riots work. And I feel like when people are upset, <laughs> like... They have every right to destroy shit. Like, when people are upset because of... When people are... Have like... Uh, are upset with the state. Like... Yeah. I mean, what else? Nothing else is working. And when people when people are upset... I mean, I'm trying to like say it in a way that like... It, it doesn't make the January 6th shit. Like... Oh, right. It's like... I don't know. But not that they... When you're oppressed and you and they keep on being oppressed and there's just no end to the oppression. Right. right. I, I, and you feel belittled by every mo- by every step that you go through in when that system. Yeah. Like violent injustice being inflicted on your community. It's like... Yeah. That's upsetting to the point. It's like, what else are you going to do? But yeah. January 6th is made up fuck bullshit. Yeah, so there was riots, but with those, like, basically those riots, of course, because like I said, I think riots work. In Brixton, you wouldn't have had black people elected to the parliament in 1987. There was pretty much an immediate reaction to that. And the black labor MP, Diane Abbott, told The Guardian, if you tried to talk about racial justice in the early 80s, you were dismissed by those on the right of politics, even on the right of the labor party, as someone with a chap on their shoulder. Today, we have the black MPs and a civic language to address our grievances. Yeah. He's like one of the only black... Andre Leon Talley was the highest ranked black fashion editor in Vogue. Pretty much all of like the magazine, like the Condé Nast magazine. Yeah. yeah, industry at that time. Until Edward Innifel, and until he became a thing. Mm-hmm. I think he's like, I obviously can't 
miss this opportunity if I'm writing a book and discuss about the black plight. There's no way I'm gonna not mention all these. Yeah, getting to know him through this book, it's like they're in my, it's like I can't imagine a world where he doesn't include this in his book because it feels like yeah. it's just such an important experience for him to like talk about. And, and he yeah. has like, he just, it's so well written, like, because he is including all this like historic stuff in there, the stats, the the names of stuff, the dates. It's like just really well done. And he talks a lot about too, but like black people are the only ones that are going to lift uplift each other. Why can't we talk about the black plight in white, I don't know, like in white uh, books? Like just because he's black, he does feel like he has to talk about I mean, like, I don't know. Why can't we be talking about that more in biography? I, I, as, as a white person, like there should be also more talking of like the the disparity around us and people that are marginalized are always put in a position to like basically call out what's what's the problem right right whereas like white people we get to write books we're like so you know i was doing my thing just no need to mention all the other stuff that was going on around me because like it doesn't affect me like i affect everyone else and so his dad had gotten asylum and so he wasn't allowed to work for three years after his arrival. So like imagine having this big lump of grumpiness just around the house all day long. Yeah, because he wasn't allowed to work for three years, yeah. which I'm like, what? The, how does that assail? Is that a normal asylum kind of rich like process? You're not allowed to work for three years? I don't know. Someone write into us and tell us because that's interesting. But you know what? They actually, the writer, the guy I'm seeing, he got a green card marriage, right? He was in love. They were actually really married, but like I think that something of the push of the marriage was to help provide for citizenship, like their yeah. partner's citizenship. And they weren't Is she from Canada? No, they're from they are from Russia. Mm-hmm. And during that process they were told that they weren't allowed to work. But like their lawyer was like, just ignore that. You're allowed to work. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I'm just basing it off of my neighbors who have asylum and they work. But yeah, maybe it's just like no one really. You can't not work. I think that's psychotic. Like unless you have like you're independently wealthy, which what are the chances? Well, and like and so we've been writing letters for their like asylum cases and you have to be like, they're great neighbors. They're great people. Like, you know, like you have to be exceptional to like get. Yeah. Get And it's like you want them to be like upstanding, hardworking. But it's like, how can they? Anyway, so like his dad's around the house. I I was confused though because like later I think we find that they move into a bigger house like really quickly. But so his dad like sends them to the grocery store to do the weekly shopping. He says it feels like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. They'd never seen a supermarket before. Luther cooks for everyone and he becomes really good at like making these dishes that they ate back home. His aunt would stand over him instructing him how to cut the onions a certain way, when to add the meat. And he said, like, to this day, Luther does all the cooking. We love that. <laughs> we love a man doing the cooking. <laughs> yeah, he goes to, he ends up going to school, of course, in his town. He got to, like, have a multimedia lab. And they had basketball courts and a running track. The track back in Ghana, he said we had to read about science experiments. <laughs> Here, we actually took part in them. It was, like, a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, he said there were three girls whom I adored and who could call me boo-boo anytime they liked. <laughs> well, because boo-boo was a term they called, like, newly arrived Africans. And I think it was derogatory, but, like, I don't really know. <laughs> okay, but then it was, oh, yeah, he said the kids, they're called recently arrived immigrants boo-boo. So that was how Luther, Kenneth, and I became known. 
He also says that in his first year at the school, he still harbored his dream of becoming an Egyptologist, which I'm like, how does Egypt get its own ology? Are you like an Americanologist? Is there like a, right. a Mexicologist? It's like, why, you know, like, why yeah, like, why is Egypt its own like literal discipline? Why do I know so much about Egypt? I mean, like when I say so much, I barely know anything, but I know more about Egypt than I know about anywhere else in like Africa. Yeah, right. Like, because we do, when we do the classics, like in school, we did like Egypt, Greece, Rome, the other, so Brian and I went out to eat on Friday and it's like a funny experience when you like see someone all day, every day, and then you go out to dinner and you're kind of like, okay, so, and, but I was like, (laughs) but I was like, oh, it'd be so cool if we could travel in time to like eat food from other places. Anyway, we were talking about like where we'd want to travel in time it's like a very cliche question to ask no don't put yourself down that's a great question to ask but i'm like dude honestly ancient greece like it does seem like it would be sick dude sick they had like public baths that weren't disgusting they're were, like yeah. beautiful and they had like fast food stands egypt seems cool but it feels like it would be like a little it feels like maybe serious like too serious to me but maybe i'm just thinking pharaoh movie the disney movie about you probably Moses. are <laughs> <laughs> you probably are but, that's what i think of too i mean just the fact that they had a pharaoh freaks me out and there were right. slaves. Right. And the mystic parts. Not that Greece or Rome probably did have slaves. You know what it is? I think the Egypt was more about the sciences and Greece was more about the like the humanities. The literature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says that at Lil- Lillian Bayless, that's his school, is where he first consciously realized that women were his special weakness and that he felt, it, it, he said he felt this in a way that felt more important and more nourishing than simply wanting to kiss them like the other boys did. He loves fierce women. Yes, I feel that right way. He's a good student. We love that. He, but he is like, while he's being a good student, he's in, ingesting all this media and like 80s music magazines devouring like the new romantics music which is also new romantics was also a style of the 80s that was very diy yeah and he was very intrigued by all this but he eventually was just hanging out trying to look cool he was getting his shit together he got he begged his mom for contacts because he wore glasses a lot he was very inspired by his older brother luther college was not about my lillian ballast look of flat front secondhand pants and second thought jumpers He'd finally shaved off the sides of his afro. He's like, I, th- I like this little reference, but he's like, not to be too, she's all that. He had like a little transformation. Yeah. He basically gets stalked, really, by this person. And he's like, what the hell is going on? And then this guy came up to him and asked if he, if he would be interested in him modeling. And that- So two out of six of this family has gotten scouted at this point. Yeah. And I, see, this is why I have questions. I have questions. I believe Simon Foxton did scout Edward because Simon had almost like a fetishization of black men, honestly. But his sister, I don't know. Like, I just don't believe it. Okay, you guys. Anyways. We got a conspiracy theory. Simon Foxton is still very much alive today. And I followed his Instagram and y'all should go follow his Instagram because it's actually pretty interesting. Oh, really? And so by this time, his mom's gotten back. His mom's gotten to London She's like doing jobs under the table and they moved to Lad Ladbroke Grove. And by then he was finally able to analyze and understand the social dress cues of fellow Londoners where he lapped, up, lapped it all up with the hunger 
of a fast learner looking to find his place. Show me your outfit and I'll show you who you are is how I'd people watch back then, which I'm like, same. That's how fashion works. Yeah. This lab broke grove sounded like the place to yeah, dude, it was hopping. Yeah, so like there were still a few old school punks, bless them, clinging onto their higher dye piercings long after the explosion had petered out. Wow, he's just calling out punks. I know. Scott boys with their poker straight three quarter length trousers with a knife crease down the front and an absolute drove of beardy types wearing sandals, batik trousers in all weathers who looked like they would should be juggling on a beach somewhere, even if they were just in a queue for the post office on, on a wet Wednesday. Peppered among them alarmingly but so thrillingly came the alternative sexualities whose queerness seemed woven into every stitch of their clothes. And this is the line where it says, In Ghana, we didn't have a Western concept of gay and straight. In Tema, we never thought there was anything strange about our neighborhood's transgender prostitute, Ashawo and glamorous with her handbags on her way to meet the sailors from England and Germany. She was kind to us, and we loved her, but here they were identifiably gay men with giant mustaches and aviator sunglasses and the tiniest shorts you've ever seen, or a ripped sweatshirt, ankle boots, and jeans, so spray on. They provided an anatomy class on all their own, which I just loved. And he also said passing by some crusty Communist Party militants selling their morning star on the street, which I'm like, do you not like communists? Probably not. He's he is like very ab- about work. Yeah, he's he's neoliberal at yeah. at the finest in a lot of ways. Um, but I just was like, I don't know what makes the communist party crusty. <laughs> it was just a, they uh, probably were crusty. I mean, maybe, but I'm just curious, like why why he why what made them crusty. <laughs> Um, and then he also says this line where I'm like really confused. He says, unlike King's Road, where everybody, every good trend went to die, which I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. King's Road was where like Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren had their stores. And like also where the new romantics, like it was, it was where like style thrived and the DIYness thrived and people would go to King's Road, like take it to the fashion runways. And then like people like that saw the fashion runways but then remake it for their stores. So then it was just like marketable. Right. Recuperation, baby. So maybe he's talking about that, like the filtration cycle. But I also don't know what he's saying. I mean, now it's not the same. But he was, and he also hung out there a lot. So I don't know. I'm just confused by that comment. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could like, maybe because it was just such a visible space and like it, there was so much trendiness happening there. Like a bunch of us, like really cutting edge quote unquote aesthetics happening there that were gaining a lot of visibility and like, and yeah, becoming mainstream. Yeah. One thing that he says here is that like there was no internet. So being in the right place at the right time was everything. There was no hiding in your room if you wanted any sort of life. And that is probably why everyone's getting scouted by modeling agencies. Cause you can't just message them on Instagram and be like, "That's very true." hey, love your look or whatever, yeah. you know? So everyone's just out and about just like looking at each other. It's very true. And he basically says, like, his Lambro Grove was the place to be seen. And it was, like, very hip and happening. He said there was no greater apex every year than the Notting Hill Carnival. The Teddy Boys, which we've talked about Teddy Boys before, and they're a certain aesthetic where they, like, dress up as the working class with mixed with, like, 1950s rock and roll. Where, of course, they're racist. I should have known better. I mean, like, not better. Like, I should have just known that. But they were clearly racist. And they firebombed the homes of black Notting Hill residents. And the editor of the local West Indian paper was like, hell no, we're going to do a Caribbean-style indoor party. 
with steel drums and a beauty queen crowned at the end of the night. And that it, and basically became the Notting Hill Carnival that, they, that still lives on today. And he talks about how amazing it is and how he gets to see a lot of women just jiggling their shit. Um, and he's just like, hell yeah. Especially because he says that like African women tend to dress more modestly than Caribbean women. At Notting Hill Carnival was the first time he saw, quote, so many beautiful black women really letting it all hang out. Belly buttons, cleavage, samba dancing. I was in heaven. There was just like a lot of fashions going down at this era. And he was like grabbing at all these different identities and these different looks. Um, and he was living for like his older brother was like getting these skin tight jeans and the t-shirts but he was desperate for like luther style leather bombers which luther is his brother bomber jackets and destroyed levi's and cowboy boots and he got his first cowboy boots he talks about um at this at king's road see what i'm saying uh wait but like so and he's also talking at this time about like there's a lot of DIY that's going on. Like they'll go to the military surplus store and they'll like slash, cut, patch, taper, shred, bleach their surplus gear. But then he says, looking back on his like Nash it personal style, it was heavily influenced by the Buffalo movement. And Buffalo had been canonized a few years earlier in the mid 90s by a stylist called Ray Petrie. Petri? He says that like Buffalo's name came from Bob Marley's song, Buffalo Soldier. And it was first and foremost a fashion idea that took strong shapes and pieces loaded with outward significance, a bowler, a trench, a kilt, and place them on unexpected people, motifs from the American West or Scottish Highlands or professional boxing or the royal family would be put on unlikely models to play with and beautify the question and question mainstream standards. So it's like, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of like that Gucci collection we talked about, the like cyborg where it's just like a lot of like symbolism, but then you're like... You know, with like the, it had like the New York Yankees yeah. thing or like the turban. You're just like taking all these symbols and putting them together in a way that kind of like changes the meaning of all of them. Yeah. And sort of like how we're talking with Harajuku where it's right. like they're taking from these like American aesthetics and then it having it has a different meaning. So I'd like to learn more about well, Buffalo. I would too. And, and like I said with Malcolm McLaren, he wrote, he has a song called Buffalo. I forgot what the exact lines, but he's essentially taking from new york black culture and making this like old school like new school at the time rap music called buffalo and buffalo women um so it's probably grotesque he was not a great guy so it's probably weirdly racist but also it makes more sense now that i've read this and i was like i wonder if they're connected they have to be right oh my god okay <laughs> so ray petri um has a thing for mixed race men like barry and we didn't talk about Barry yet but I have no idea but he so he's talking about some guy got scouted working at a fruit stand dude (laughs) (laughs) it can literally happen at any time or moment just you've just got to be like part of part of Edward N and Full's family I mean I feel like this was such a cool era again such a cool time to live and exist because it was just like in London yeah, you could be picked off as a model at any point. Well, yeah, and also this family's just like all extremely hot. I don't know. I'm like I'm like questionable about how hot Edward Innifel is to me. I I don't I if I saw him on the street, I wouldn't be like, oh he's hot, but because he tells me he's hot, I'm like he's hot. Yeah, yeah. It's those bottle it's like those glasses he wears that I think his skin is beautiful, I will say that. Oh, that that's for sure. Simon was basically the guy that picked him to work as a model for ID. And he worked, he also had earned his degree at Central St. Martin's, which 
is where every great person went to Central St. Martin's, uh, like every great art and fashion person that you know from London pretty much went there. Like Lee McQueen, John Galliano, Stella McCartney, like the list goes on. So that's like the place to come from. I thought that was kind of like, I was like noted. So if you're in London and you're like, what school should I go to for fashion and art? I guess it's Central Saints. I think Alexander McQueen even went to that. If that's who Lee McQueen is, I don't know. They're but like left early. How did he go? Hmm. I was like, I'm too good for this school. I'm getting out of here, which he was. And he talks about ID, um, like talks about like how op- this pop, like pop culture during the 80s was pulsating with energy. And, um, and with that came the arrival of London's Highly influential independent fashion magazines. There's The Face, which is more about music and culture. And then ID has a fashion focus. And it was founded by Terry Jones. I have a little bit of about Terry Jones. Really? Yeah, that I want to talk about. Because Terry Jones works for um, the British Vogue. He was an art director there from 1972 to 1977. And he was under Beatrix Miller, who we talked about on Smidgey Widge with uh, Anna Wintour. Because Anna Wintour worked for the British Vogue and like mm-hmm. had beef with Beatrix. Mm-hmm. But he, like, pushed the boundary of, like, a tight asshole. So they just, like, don't like anything cool or interesting, really. Um, But he was, like, trying to always push it a little bit farther and see how much he could get away with. And he even wanted to do, like, a series on a punk youth, but was that was considered way too radical. And they're like, we can't put that in there. I know, right? And he, like, basically was kind of friends with Grace Coddington. I mean, like, they work together a lot. They still, like, talk and hang out, I guess, you know? Like, they're in the same circle. I don't know if you would call it a friendship. But um, ID originally stand for informant design. Okay. But later on was rebranded as instant design. I slash, is that a slash? Dash. Dash D was the first emoticon is what they like to say. Oh my God. Yeah. They wish. Yeah. It was literally, he likes to like brag about it. Terry does? Yeah. Because it was like handmade. And then like three years later, he got his first like Apple like computer in the late 80s so like that like a big chunky computer and then he like saw the other emoticons i guess i don't know so he's like no i was the first one because it is a winky face right yeah you kind of see the eye and they constantly are winking on the cover like people are winking on the cover and like edward talks about it being like people winking and he's like because it's tongue-in-cheek no, because they're playing into the id like the id well that's still tongue-in-cheek right it's like it's still like it's like a tongue-in-cheek nod. I don't uh, right, really right. know what tongue-in-cheek means. <laughs> I don't either. You know, they are aware. But yeah, it, I just wanted to mention that ID Wink is comes up, and I think that's kind of cool. The way they came up with the name, well, his his wife, Teresa, barely comes up in this book. And also barely comes up. Terry's wife? Yeah, like she's very much like a co-creator of this. I was reading about how they came up with ID as the name. And it says during one of their customary baths in their London house. I was like, oh, Terry and Terry and his wife. They have like a Sunday customary bath time together. That's nice. I was like, wow, what's the the size of this bathtub? Yeah. Oh, I've got really bad cramps right now. And a bath sounds so good. Yeah. A bath sounds amazing. I got to clean my bathtub. It's like full of dye remnants and like my plants from being watered. Anyways, but they like considered the bathroom being the boardroom and then one id editor dylan jones talked about like how it was like his whole thing was controlled chaos terry jones this whole thing was like just everything needs to be a little crazy and how this one guy dylan jones walked in at the office one day and discovered terry like slicing four inches of text off of the bottom of his stories 
And he was like, what the hell are you doing? Like really freaked out. And Terry was like, it just didn't fit. So that was his solution was just cutting off four inches of text and not worrying about it. Oh Anyways. my God. I Well, so I like that like the fact that he he comes, he starts this magazine after coming from Vogue and it's like, it's literally a reaction to Vogue. Yeah, he's like, fuck Vogue. The magazine is literally a reaction to Vogue and so like it, yeah, I just think that's interesting. Okay, so Simon uh, cast him a lot uh, and along with the other black kids, but one other black kid being Steve McQueen. Now, like, a director and screenwriter and famous in his own right in a different route, which I think is really cool. It, it always feels like famous people go, like, come and... There are famous people that went to the same high school, like, three or four, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. And they just all independently become famous. And you're just like, what's up with that? What's it's, up with that high school? That yeah. high school's got the secret. And so, like that high school didn't have scam models coming yeah. to their <laughs> exactly. like, There's nobody auditorium. They had like, they had like Disney execs there. Um, but Steve McQueen like went on to win Oscars. He did like, I think, 12 Years a Slave. Mm. Ever heard of it? Yeah. So Simon really opened up these doors for a lot of black kids in the neighborhood and Eventually, he hired on our boy Edward Innifel as an assistant. And he's in Edward's in high school at this point, and so he's like, his mom understands that this is important to him, and like, you know, and also he pestered her relentlessly for months. So finally, he gives Edward permission to like call, like to do it. So he calls Simon and says, "Let's do it." Like. And he starts working for ID, but it's like his dad doesn't know. And he's still like a full-time student. And this is just like his like side hobby. Yeah. And he talks about the ID universe being this crazy kind of cool place and like how he got to meet all these interesting people. Like he, oh, he called oh, like Vivian Westwood over the top and he got to work with big firms like Leanne Franks, who was uh, the inspiration behind Jennifer Saunders' character. Idina Monsoon from Absolute Fabulous. Absolutely Fabulous, which I freaking love. I just, like, love that reference. And then that made me fall in a deep spiral when I was, like, Googling all that. And as his time as a model, he he also saw, you know, other assistants working with stylists and how they were, like, basically abused and berated. And he's like, I did not have that experience with Simon. Which, again, like reinforces this why do why are people so awful in fashion there's no there's literally no reason for it there's no need for it and the, the reason he had such a great opportunity and experience at id is because they like really weren't cruel they really i mean they probably didn't pay well but they weren't abusive to the new and young people in the fashion world and that was what was like him and his relationship was more about like teaching him and learning and being patient and yeah. not abusive there's like several times in this book where he'll bring up like blah 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 this person like they're known for being a huge asshole but they're always always nice to me which i appreciate because it's like just because they were nice to me doesn't mean that they weren't shitty to other but yeah it seems like he has good experiences and like except for like when we saw him in the September issue, he was like, I literally want to kill myself. Well, yeah, at ID. At ID, he's having good experience. Yeah. Yeah, he's being supported by the team. I mean, as much as you can be supported, the chaos around him. He yeah. wasn't being, like, berated for, like... I mean, I don't, like... My understanding of ID is that it's, like, nowhere near as profitable or, like, big as Vogue, right? Like, it's a really different situation. And he also talks about how Simon's, like, gay and, like, 
just having that kind of queerness alliance and they end up going to heaven which was a club very popular uh, for gay men brothers would go anyways because his brothers were like it was a great place to pick up the girls yeah and this is another way where like his his experience differed so much from Andre Leontali where it's like Andre Leontali was trying was like involved with the Met you know like he was around the bougiest of the bougie like I think ha- having your first experience with ID would be way better yeah because it was, it was a it, you're surrounded by other young people you're learning together you're growing right. together right you have a cohort and they were kind of there yeah white people are just like exceptionally mean they're creating that culture of meanness he says like you know he he was modeling and so he hated he you know you have to do go sees and like if modeling makes you think at first, oh, I must look good, you soon start to feel like the ugliest person in the world. I knew I wasn't getting jobs because I was too dark and African looking. This is an especially hard lesson for a teenager to internalize who is crisscrossing the city for days on end to stand in rooms under the gaze of white people who find his appearance to be undesirable on sight. I remember meeting Kate, jo- Kate Moss on another go see where I didn't get a job and she did being jealous and feeling like a failure. And he does talk a lot about Kate Moss. Harry Jones's wife, Trisha, finally mentioned, uh, and she was very big about leaving bitchiness at the door and would was well aware of the tendency of young fashionistas to let their attitudes run away with them. And she used to lecture the receptionist to be nice to everyone. No divas allowed. Her feeling was, it's intimidating to young photo- photogra- photographers and models to come in here. So be kind and welcoming. Hell yeah, Trisha. I love that. It that really, gives me warm and fuzzy feeling. Yeah, like exactly. I mean, if you're going to invite because they're probably exploiting a lot of these young professionals at least be nice to them at least be nice to them yeah so he was modeling a lot and he was becoming a bigger part of the id crew and he was getting more confident at nightclubs again high schooler and with simon and his snowballing band of luther michael both those are his brothers and his cousins whichever of his cousins were staying at his house at the time basically he has a big crew that he goes out to the club with and he starts seeing a girl that he'd met, a model called Ngozi. They both had shaved heads and would walk around holding hands. Sometimes we'd make out. He felt in a genuine he felt a genuine affection for her, but was starting to realize it only went so far. Go to gay bars because of Simon and they're having a great time. He did acid. They were teenagers still in school. They and their dad had no idea. So this is his life. I love that for him. I think um, all teenagers um, should have the opportunity of this kind of rebellion because um, it it just – you got to explore that chaos. I think it's okay. I, I feel like it turned out good for him. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's also fine to just, like, have – extracurricular activities and like maybe not do acid till college no i'm just talking about young people but i i had that experience as a 17 18 19 20 year old up to my like 25 and i think i got that bit of chaos that i think some people didn't and i think some of my i know some of my friends that are just always looking for that fun they're like i mean what they can't do acid now it's harder to come by. Let's say, it, like, where are they going to get the acid at, you it know? Depends. It depends who you know when. Like, it could be hard for high schoolers to come by that, too. I, yeah, I guess. But it's not. I don't know. It wasn't for me back then. I just was. If you start getting involved in it, it's easier to find stuff. Yeah. Um, I just don't think we need to glamorize, like, club lifestyles or, like, a high school. Like, for a high schooler to be, like, it's, like, staying up late, doing drugs, like, going to clubs. 
Oh, I don't want to glamorize it, but I think it should be like part of the rebellion so you can... There is something to be said about a culture that stays up late. There is a connection of culture that stays up late and creativity. There is just like, and being a little bit more liberal. I can't tell you the, the direct connection, but like there is... Just like not all of Europe stays up late, but London is a center, a hotbed, especially at this not point. Not for a 16 year old. Well, no, it's like I think there's also a drinking drug culture here that's out of control that spirals. He becomes an alcoholic. Yeah, he becomes an alcoholic, but like, London doesn't. Do you, like, you think people in London don't have alcoholism like people in America do? Yes. And you can talk to any Londoner that visits the U.S. and there's a whole different – it's a whole different drinking culture. And I think it's because there's a lot more suppression behind it with here. He's literally talking about like going out and binge drinking. I just feel like – I just feel like it's okay to be like that they had a good experience but not to say that this is an essential for people to experience. That's fair. I just feel like – I think there's something to be said about like parties in general, like having parties yeah. is part of the creative process. <laughs> like there is a creativity that is milled. There's an art scene and parties and drugs and it's all kind of incorporated with each other and it shouldn't be shamed or like looked down upon. It should be like, and it shouldn't be celebrated. It should just be a thing that people experience yeah. and have an opportunity experience. And like, that's all I really want to say. I mean, some people literally do not care or do not want to be a part of it, and that's fine. Yeah. But I'm just saying there is something like affordable housing provides people to have house parties, provides people to be able to pay rent to be more artists. Like I, I I'm not going to be able to have that experience now because of my the way I live and how I live and like the place I live. But like, you won't be able to have house parties. You're saying house parties or even go to the club. It's expensive to go to the club. It's like there's. When things are more affordable, there's just more parties to be had. I don't know. That's all. I, I'm, I'm going off. There's less parties now is all I'm saying. Okay. Jackie's hot take. Parties have declined. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't agree with that personally, but let's just move on. <laughs> but yeah, house parties rule. That's not what they're doing, but house parties rule. And Anyways, so he gets to have all these experiences at ID, goes to New York and experiences New York. He He's just getting out, all these. He makes out with someone at a club yeah like his first gay experience you know and he gets to see the voguing and all this stuff and this is him visiting simon's there too right and yeah simon brings him like on a shoot yeah and yeah he gets to have this these unique experiences as a 17 year old that i you wouldn't like, especially when you're questioning your queerness in new york uh where it's just like really letting his freak fly he was still very scared of sex but yeah, he eventually uh, was pushed to put himself out there by Simon. Basically, he got to stylize his brothers. And he went out to his house in East London in a strange post-war development we called Toy Town because of its attempts to brutalistic picturesque with little bridges connecting the buildings. And he got to shoot, basically, uh, this really butch black gay realness. He always talks about realness because that was what ID was all about, was right, realness. right. And a watered-down version of what Simon had already perfected. And, yeah, this was with him. He got to explore his own aesthetic, and he was pushed to explore his own aesthetic. And I think that's really unique and of – that's not an opportunity that's provided for a lot of people, especially entering – at his age, but also, like, entering a mag. It's impossible to enter magazine culture. Yeah. Um, it's pretty hard to – 
like enter the stylist culture, especially now, I feel like, um, without years of work and being kind of having grit, as they say. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome that he was not only encouraged, they like set him up and supported him. Mm-hmm. He talks about Beth Summers who was the overall fashion editor and you know she was terrifying to most people she wore combat boots and a finger full of rings and was super direct but he liked her because you know he loves fierce women and he says that she shared his obsession with realness which was starting to coalesce into a style people would eventually call grunge yeah um i really appreciate him showcasing the process of him like learning he talks a lot about his like learning how he got his aesthetic his eye yeah and yeah i think more artists should it's not it doesn't just appear it's through practice yeah it's and, like, through mentorship from yeah. people yeah he has started to develop this way of working that he's since come to rely on absolutely and it would only be when that when he went to sleep that he would finally like these ideas would crystallize in his head and he'd wake up and he would just have an image of the entire story that he wanted to tell for the shoot. What they'd be wearing, the, the set, the hair, the makeup, the nails, the brows, the all of it. If everything wasn't visualized by the time I woke up, I knew I still needed to pinpoint the concept some more because something was was still not there. This is still his process. So it's like, He's come to just really trust his unconscious mind. Very surrealist of him. Yeah, and, very Freudian too. Yep. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, at this point, he's still in school. He's still styling. Was acting like he was going to college for a really long time. And he went to school with Steve McQueen. And Steve McQueen always tells the story about how he stepped on the thing, on the like, at the doorway. And he was just like, I can't. Edwin was like, I can't oh, do this. Oh, right, right, right. He, like, basically, he, like, enrolls for college and immediately yeah he like is like no and but then he says the truth was my quitting school was a little bit more gradual but essentially he's like never his heart is just never in it and then eventually he's just like yeah he's lying to his parents and he for a a really long time but because he's oh are you okay baby sounded like a lot he like Eventually tells his dad, and his dad loses his shit, throws out everything that he owns, which wasn't a lot, but it's everything. Like, literally throws it outside. Yeah. And his mom's just, like, standing by. Yeah, standing by, just being like, oh, God, you know, not saying anything. And he's, like, in shock. He's just lost his entire family, essentially. He's been, like, separated from that, which it is, like, if you're – he didn't get kicked out because he was gay, but, like, it's a very – Similar story of just coming out as gay and being basically separated from your family and being kicked out that he finds with a lot of his other friends, his queer friends. And then that same day, uh, Terry comes in and is told that Beth, who at at that time was the fashion director, she, before he could even like deal with the shock of what had just happened, he was told that he was going to become the fashion director of ID. Boom. And he was only 18. Which is insane. Insane. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, Okay, Lulu, go to your bed. Anyway, um, I love you. I love you. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.